Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series focusing on COVID-19 and its impacts on our region of Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. Hello, I'm Hannah Schultz and I work with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Today, we're going to talk about COVID-19 in the meatpacking industry. This concern received a lot of attention recently and is a particular concern for our region. We have 18 meatpacking plants in Iowa and the huge majority of the country's pork comes from Iowa. A big percentage of Iowa's positive COVID-19 cases are linked to these plants. There have also been outbreaks at meatpacking plants across the country, including the other states our training center serves, Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. We're going to start today's conversation talking with Dr. Nicole Novak. Nicole is an assistant research scientist in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. She is passionate about community health in Iowa and uses epidemiologic and community-engaged research methods to examine historical, structural, and policy influences on the health of immigrants, Latinos, and rural residents. In a few minutes, we'll also hear from Andrew Bribriesco. For the last 10 years, Andrew has been an attorney in Eastern Iowa. He has dedicated the majority of his practice to representing meatpacking workers. Andrew regularly teaches continuing legal education classes and is an author of a workers' compensation law treatise. Thank you both for being with us. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. So, Nicole, can you start off by helping us with a little bit of context? Uh, so, who works in meatpacking plants? What, where are meatpacking plants located? Yeah. Um, well, meatpacking is actually a very old industry in the United States. Um, it used to be that meatpacking plants were actually in the center of cities because that's where people needed the most meat. So, people would actually transport livestock from the rural places where they were raised to the city and they would be slaughtered there. And even back in the early 20th century, many of the workers in meatpacking plants were immigrants. Um, There was a famous book, The Jungle, about the conditions that people worked in in meatpacking plants in Chicago, for example. And they have been challenging and unsafe places to work in many cases for a very long time. There have been shifts throughout the 20th century. Um, For example, the rise of refrigeration made it possible to move meat slaughtering back to rural communities closer to where the livestock is raised and then just to transport the processed meat to consumers. Um, and then there were other shifts, not just in the location of meatpacking plants, but also in who worked there. So meatpacking used to be um, a, more of a middle-class profession. Uh, in Iowa, for example, many of the workers were U.S.-born white workers. Um, there were relatively strong unions representing meatpacking workers. Up through the end of the 20th century. Um, And then there started to be a lot of changes. Unions began to lose some of their power and the workforce also at that time shifted as wages dropped. Meatpacking workers shifted to be disproportionately immigrants, increasingly refugees in the last 20 years, and also many, many workers of color. So at this point today, there are 297,000 people working in meat processing in the U.S. 
they're mostly men. They're uh, 27% women. 37% of meatpacking workers nationwide are Hispanic or Latino. 17% are Black or African American. So both of those proportions are, are higher than the general population of the U.S. And then also 6% of meatpacking wor workers are Asian. It's also important to note that about one-third of meatpacking workers are non-citizens. Um, so this can be people with a wide range of immigration statuses, from people who have work permits or visas, maybe temporary protected status if they're from a country that has been granted a particular protected status, or people even with deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA. And then, of course, some meatpacking workers are unauthorized or undocumented immigrants, which is an important issue for people's health and safety. Meatpacking workers are a wide range of ages. Um, this is relevant for the topic we're talking about today of, of COVID. So the median age is 42, but there's a large proportion of meatpacking workers that are 50 and above and starting to be in that age category that is at higher risk for, for bad outcomes with COVID. Um, and as I mentioned, meatpacking plants are usually at this point in rural or mid-sized rural communities. So they're often farther from the bigger cities that have more resources for, for example, immigrant communities in terms of legal resources, other service providers um, with a wide variety of language access, et cetera. Thanks, Nicole. That's a lot of um, really good background for us. So uh, you've done a lot of research on meatpacking plants in rural communities and rural health. So what are the health concerns that these communities have? Well, first I'll say I'm really glad that um, Andrew Briviesco is going to be on the podcast today because he specializes in a lot of the different health issues that come up for meatpacking workers while they're at work. So meatpacking is a very fast workplace. There's a lot of risk of acute injuries as well as repetitive use injuries. So people are doing hard work over and over and can develop um, injuries over time. The other thing that we're seeing recently is that meatpacking plants are places where people are close together, are working quickly, and don't always have frequent opportunities to partake in the um, social distancing or hygiene practices that are recommended right now during coronavirus. Um, and so we're seeing in Iowa many outbreaks that are affecting meatpacking workers. I guess the last thing I'll say is another major concern is access to health insurance and health care. So while there is some insurance provided by employers, there's a lot of reasons that meatpacking workers still might face barriers to timely care that is culturally and linguistically appropriate to them. And combined with other stressors and fears that are affecting immigrant communities throughout our country, there's um, a lot of reasons people might delay seeking health care when they're sick. Could you talk a little bit about what the outbreaks are looking like in meatpacking plants in, in our state? And what are some of the challenges of people working in meatpacking plants um, related to COVID-19? Advocates close to communities who work in meatpacking plants have started raising concerns about the particular risk to meatpacking workers, I think over a month ago at this point. Um, there was a case at a meatpacking plant in Ottumwa, Iowa, um, and people started to point out, you know, everyone's close together. There's a lot of reasons that this could create conditions for an outbreak. Um, and the first outbreak we saw in Iowa was in Columbus Junction. Um, so that plant temporarily suspended operations a few weeks ago um, and cases in that community have continued to grow um, up to 200 cases um, and two deaths that we know of so far. 
There have also been um, outbreaks at the National Beef Plant in Tama, Iowa. Um, more recently, Waterloo, Iowa has had um, over 180 cases from the Tyson plant there. And there's growing numbers of cases in Perry, Iowa. There's been proactive testing that has identified even asymptomatic cases in Eagle Grove, Iowa, as well as other communities. So we're seeing meatpacking communities emerge as one of the really high risk locations and communities for COVID in Iowa right now. So Nicole, one of the things that we're seeing now is uh, people are not quite sure where to get their information and how to get their information and what trusted sources are out there. So uh, is this also true with workers in meatpacking plants and how might it be compounded? Yeah, I think what we've been hearing from the community is as with a lot of places in the United States, there's a lot of misinformation about what coronavirus is and how to prevent it circulating in immigrant and meatpacking communities. Um, there's also understandably a lot of confusion about how to access care and testing. Um, coronavirus testing is very limited for any Iowan, but there's extra layers of complexity within that for people who do not speak English or have uh, unstable insurance status um, and are afraid of um, having to pay out of pocket for their testing or for their healthcare. Um, there's a lot of people working to make sure that information about coronavirus is disseminated in lots of different languages, but um, there's still a lot of work left to do to make sure that that information reaches the communities that need it. But there's also been a lot more focus on public health than we're used to seeing. So why does all of this matter to public health and why should public health be paying specific attention to what's going on in meatpacking plants? Mm -hmm. Public health ideally is about prevention. It's about um, not just making sure that people don't die or don't have severe illness when they do get sick, but hopefully preventing people from getting sick in the first place. Um, and there's a lot of ways we can work to prevent morbidity and mortality in public health. Um, we can promote individual level behavior changes. And then we can also think about the conditions of our community, the way our society is set up and how those social circumstances can also predispose people to illness. Um, and so in the case of COVID um, and coronavirus, we've, we've thought a lot about those individual behaviors, you know, things like hand washing, things like distancing yourself from people socially or physically. Um, but what we're seeing increasingly is we really need to be paying attention to who is able to put those individual level behavior change recommendations into practice. Um, and people who are in these essential ind industries, um, people who need to keep going to work in order to support their family, it's a lot harder for them to stay six feet away from other people. It's a lot harder for them to avoid being exposed to this virus. Um, and so I think public health has a great toolkit for thinking not just about telling individual people to cha each change their behavior, but to think about how can we set up safe communities, safe workplaces, so that we support people in taking on these behaviors that preserve their health, the health of their family, and the health of the community as a whole. Thanks, Nicole. I think that um, provides a really good segue into the conversation that we can have with Andrew. So, Andrew, for our listeners who don't know much about meatpacking and much about meatpacking workers, can you explain what a meatpacking plant looks like uh, and why it might be a risky place for coronavirus transmission? 
Yes, I'll do my best. Um, it's no surprise why um, meatpacking work is done by largely immigrants, um, the percentages um, that Nicole uh, provided. It's because it's a tough job. Um, so at the Columbus Junction plant, for example, there's about over 1,000 workers there. And these workers are not able um, to, and there's no way they could perform their job um, within six, uh, with the appropriate amount of social distancing that's being recommended by the CDC and OSHA guidelines. Um, the quick example, uh, the electric knife, um, you're working within one and a half feet from the other person. Um, and, and you're working at a fast pace as Nicole, um, as Nicole mentions, um, the bottom line for a lot of these meatpacking plants are production speed. So in, in terms of how you work, it's fast. It's hard labor. The injuries that come out of there, it makes it one of the most, um, you know, uh, most risk for orthopedic injuries and other, and other types of illnesses. Um, I mean, one of the, it's no surprise that one of the first things that Governor Reynolds did was shut down gyms. I mean, if you think about the ability to spread this disease when you're sweating and you're working hard, that's what a meatpacking plant is on a larger scale. And besides being there for 8 to 12 hours, depending on your shift, you're also going to be congregating in a cafeteria, for example. Um, these are all places where the don't be around 10 people, it, it's just not possible. Um, so it, it's a picture that it's hard to explain, prone to spread this, um, to spread COVID-19. The CDC and OSHA provided really early guidance on how to mitigate COVID transmission risk in workplaces. Um, again, washing hands, using personal protective equipment, um, adding additional space between workers. So why did it take so long for Iowa's meatpacking plants to begin implementing some of these measures? Um, it was not required. Um, the OSHA guidelines were just exactly what it sounds like. They were guidelines. And the guidelines specifically state that this is not providing a legal obligation to meatpacking plants. So when you're left to the um, individual state requirements, because the national, the OSHA is not providing these federal, um, you know, federal requirements, um, and the state isn't doing anything, well, you're leaving it up to the individual plant. And as I mentioned before, the number one thing these plants care about was production and producing. Um, I, I can just tell you, you know, a quick example that beforehand there was no, uh, before the closure on April 6, 2020 at the Columbus Junction plant, um, there was no PPE provided to these workers. Um, there was no decrease in the speed. Um, they were doing some temperature checks, but one of my clients told me that because the line was backed up, the person who was doing the temperature checks just told everybody to come on in. So even the, the mitigating step of temperature checks wasn't even being followed to the to the to the T. So, in a short, there is no there is no requirements from either state or federal government. So, what are some other ways that the meatpacking industry 
enable the spread of COVID-19? Well, one of the uh, things that touches upon the, the demographics that Nicole highlighted is um, the, the language and cultures that sort of uh, makes it a, a, a melting pot in these, uh, in these areas. Um, some, uh, many of them aren't citizens and many of them don't necessarily want to speak up when they believe they're in, um, uh, when their health is in jeopardy. Uh, speaking with some of my clients, they themselves, they, they kind of felt something was wrong, but it, it's hard to give that voice. And I asked one of my clients, why, why didn't you speak up? And the answer was, we've done it before and they don't listen. No hacen caso. They don't care. So just sort of, this is just uh, uh, heightening what has already been happening in these meatpacking plants in terms of safety. Um, I mean, it's no surprise that, you know, there's ways to prevent orthopedic injuries before um, and things could be changed. Sometimes they don't. The line is the most important thing. And just like in those cases, I think that Tyson just kind of wanted to put their hand, Tyson and other meatpacking plants wanted to put their head in the sand and just keep producing. Um, so that, there's some of that going on, as well as uh, in the situation that happened at least in Columbus Junction, um, supervisors weren't telling people if, uh, if somebody was taken away because they were positive symptomatic, they weren't telling other people why certain workers were being taken off the floor. I mean, that's just information and knowledge that uh, an employer should be telling its employees. So what can employees do if they get COVID-19? Are there, is there any recourse against employers? So there's a couple of things. So um, first off, if, somebody gets COVID-19 from their employment, uh, workers' compensation laws do apply and they should be entitled to medical care. Um, the worker shouldn't have to even spend one cent on the test itself. If there's any hospital stay or if there's any uh, time when they're off work or God forbid any permanent damage, the employer is responsible for compensating that worker. Now, in terms of the um, in unemployment aspect, if there's not a safe work environment, unemployment law says a person can quit and qualify for unemployment benefits if that's not changed. Now, we're sort of in an interesting gray area uh, with what happens to workers who are fearful of contracting COVID-19, but there's all these mitigating steps. So those are some things that we're just gonna to have to figure out in the future, what's gonna to happen to these workers. So we first recorded this podcast a little over a week ago. And while we were uh, producing it to release, President Trump used the Defense Production Act to order meatpacking plants to stay open. So we wanted to come back together to ask you, Andrew and Nicole, um, what this really means, uh, given the conversation we had a few days ago, uh, what recourse do workers have? What does this mean legally for people who work in meatpacking plants who 
might be afraid of getting COVID-19 while at work or who may, be, um, may have recovered from COVID-19 and need to go back to work? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think there's a couple of steps that we have to get before whether it would affect a worker's remedies under the law. One, whether um, President Trump was actually acting uh, within the, the, the confines of the Constitution. Um, whether he can actually implement this um, this executive order. I mean, I know he did implement it, but whether it's constitutional is a different question. Um, and presumptively, if it is constitutional, whether it applies to state laws also up in the air. Uh, workers' compensation law is a state-by-state state system. Uh, unemployment law is a state-by-state state system. Um, I guess at minimum, if it does apply to federal law, then it would insulate uh, companies from OSHA violations um, and fines that they could get under federal OSHA laws. But under state law, um, whether that applies or not, it, it would be uh, very question. It would be questionable. Now, for uh, workers' compensation, uh, for example, if it does apply to state law. It immunes companies from damages and penalties, and I don't think workers' compensation would even be considered a damage or a penalty. Likewise, unemployment, I also would not believe that a court would interpret damages and penalties uh, to, to apply to unemployment benefits. So, um, in the, it, it is possible that this law could apply to civil actions class actions and other sort of state um, tort law, but I don't necessarily believe that it would, it, it would be interpreted to include uh, workers' compensation or unemployment benefits. But just like the virus itself is novel, we're on sort of novel legal grounds. But those would be sort of the analytical steps that a, uh, that a court or um, lawyers would be looking at. So Trump has said that if there are legal challenges to this, his administration would side with the employer. Um, but it sounds like from what you just said that that's legally questionable and potentially unconstitutional and will likely be challenged. So what does it mean practically when these messages are already out there? And um, Governor Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, has also said people will lose their unemployment benefits if they don't go back to work. And there are a lot of these messages that really are anti-worker and scary for workers who are working in these essential jobs and meatpacking plants. So practically, does it matter if it's unconstitutional? From for, for my experience, um, the, 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 you know, the Pandora's box has already opened up. The, the sort of, the, wor the words of the governor have already sent a message telling workers they need to get back or they'll lose their benefits. Now, Governor Reynolds' words aren't exactly correct because under unemployment law, specifically, uh, Iowa rule, Iowa Administrative Code 871-24.26 allows a worker to get unemployment benefits if they leave for unsafe working conditions, unlawful working conditions, or intolerable or detrimental working conditions. So there is a legal uh, safety hatch for workers who 
are presented in these intolerable conditions. However, practically speaking, when a worker is hearing these words, they're not necessarily thinking about what potentially they could have. Because I, I've consulted with some of these workers who don't necessarily think they're going back into a safe uh, working condition. Um, however, when I consult them, I say, I think we have a legal argument under Iowa Administrative Code. However, the length it takes and whether the worker is going to ultimately be successful is up in the air because remember, an administrative law judge has to interpret what is going on in this particular uh, person's case and see whether it applies to that situation. And I think the overall rhetoric, it's not clear whether that will be the, the case, um, whether a judge will actually find in favor of the worker. I, I wouldn't be able to give that solid recommendation to a worker at this point. And I think when it comes down to providing for their family or going back to risk or injury, many people choose to go back to work because their family is number one. So practically speaking, uh, I, I think many aren't, uh, I think many people are going back to work because in unsafe conditions with potential PTSD symptoms, anxiety, and overall fear because they don't want to lose their paycheck and they live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, whether this is, this is, this doesn't seem like it would be good for the mental health of the community. And then overall, I think it takes away the dignity of the work. Since we last talked, the testing in Iowa has increased quite a bit and many of the counties that have made testing since now have over a thousand confirmed cases of COVID-19, which is, uh, a huge, huge increase. Uh, you know, some have more than a thousand cases connected to me. So uh, the fear of going back to these environments is very real. Uh, so Nicole, do you have ideas of what some of the public health consequences are, some maybe mental health consequences of, uh, you know, pushing people to go back into these workplaces? Yeah, um, I think as Andrew mentioned, we're hearing a lot of reports of workers being really scared to return to work. Um, and it's, it's not an abstract fear. It's often that people they know, people that they worked with day to day um, got sick and, and in some cases died from this illness. Um, so we, we talk about anticipatory stress in public health, that sort of vigilance or fear of something that, that may happen to you. Um, and I think that's something that can really be hard on someone and wear at their mental health, um, especially folks who are used to being the provider for their family and take a lot of pride in taking care of, of the people they love. Um, I think it's a really tough circumstance for folks. And of course, not just for the head of household, but also for the people back at home who are worried about them and, and are worried about themselves getting sick. Not all of these families, but some live in multi-generational households where there might be elders who are at risk of exposure. Um, so yeah, I think it's um, a time of, of a lot of fear. And I think, um, you know, the, the messages that policy sends have implications for folks' mental health too. Um, when, when there's policies that kind of explicitly put people at more risk, I think that, that sends a message um, that, that there's not a lot of support for them. And, and that's hard on people too. I, I read a lot of web forums um, in Spanish in Iowa. There's people who speak many languages who are affected by these policies. 
for the ones I've seen in Spanish. You know, people say pretty explicitly, oh, it seems like they don't care about us. Um, I, I think those are things that, that matter for folks' well-being. Um, and it's sad and um, frustrating to see. So this is a question for both of you now. Uh, what can public health do about this? What's our role in thinking about uh, risk in meatpacking plants? Yeah, well, if we think about, you know, the role of public health in, in promoting well-being for all people in our communities, I think there's ways that people in public health can um, draw attention to the risks that meatpacking workers are facing and also um, advocate for changes that preserve their health and safety. So, um, you know, something I want to be careful about, someone said to me a couple weeks ago, well, they're essential workers, so, you know, we can't do anything about it. You know, if they don't work, it'll mess up the food supply and that'll cause problems for society, so they just need to keep working. And, you know, the truth is it's a much, much more nuanced situation than that. And there's a lot of ways that people's health and safety can be taken into account and prioritized as it should be. Um, so there are ways that meatpacking work can be adapted um, to preserve the health and well-being of workers. And also workers can be empowered to know their rights and know that um, they are under, they're not obligated to work in conditions that they don't believe to be safe. In terms of adaptations at meat processing plants, Hannah, you mentioned some of the CDC and OSHA guidelines. There, there are um, ways that outside pressure could, could make those guidelines more than just guidelines and could actually require meatpacking plants to protect their workers more. And again, that includes, you know, from the very beginning, just not having people work who are sick um, and making sure that they get paid when they're not working. It can actual it can it can include actual physical changes to the workspace so things like physical barriers wherever possible automatic doors so that people aren't touching things um, it can also include administrative changes so staggering the shifts um, really paying attention to leave policies extra wash breaks um, more opportunities for physical distancing in addition to physical barriers and then, of course, um, protective equipment. And um, we're starting to see some meatpacking plants in Iowa initiate some of these changes. But in many cases, it's too late. Workers are sick, and, and some workers have even died. Another thing that we haven't really talked about as much is that this extends beyond the workplace. Um, workers uh, have families. Workers live in communities. Workers carpool with other people. Um, and so really thinking about people in context, all the people that we're all connected to, we're all linked lives. Um, those are other ways that public health can really get involved in, in thinking about preserving well-being for, for whole communities. Um, I think education is another huge part of the picture. But um, making sure that everyone is getting accurate information about coronavirus and how it's spread and also about their rights as workers is really important. And that information should be in the language that they pr prefer um, in whatever format they prefer. So some people prefer to get that information maybe through audio or video, others would prefer to read it. Um, and ideally too from organizations or sources that they trust. You suggested or recommended, Nicole, including staggering starting times and giving more space between workers. These seem like things to me that would benefit health and safety at all times, not only when there's a pandemic. Um, so I'm wondering, a lot of the 
kind of inequities we're seeing in terms of rates of who's getting sick and who's dying, um, a lot of times they're just highlighting inequities that already existed and they're not new to those of us who are paying attention to these things. So I'm curious, Nicole or Andrew, um, are some of these uh, recommendations that Nicole just mentioned things that um, advocates have been asking for for a long time? Or are they things that are just coming up given the current situation? I, I would say that slowing the line down is something that um, people have been advocating for a very long time. Um, but it's very important in this context because we could have less workers at a particular shift and we could have, you know, not as many workers in tight quarters. Um, those are things that would slow down production. Um, but at the same time, it would help um, decrease the spread of COVID-19. Uh, I'll just say, to, uh, talking uh, about what, just responding a little bit to what Nicole mentioned, is these are things that I wish, I wish that could have been done before. And there's still potentially going to be another wave. Another wave, they're saying that maybe there's going to be a bigger wave and it's going to have more impact. Um, but Pandora's box had already been opened. A lot of these workers that I'm talking to, even with these um, giving a mask and having plexiglass put in between the cafeteria tables, this isn't enough to really calm. Um, people were really scared. People are still very scared to go back to work in this environment. And ultimately, in terms of the law, who's going to ultimately bear the burden economically and physically? And I think that you know, without lawmakers stepping up, uh, I think a lot of it's going to be borne by the community and by the workers. Um, so I'm really hoping that there is going to be on the back end some changes to make sure that every worker is taken care of, especially if they were, if they got COVID from their employment. Um, in terms of the image too, I really, I really do think that we need a different image of meatpacking workers. And I've seen a lot on Facebook and social media um, cheering on the, you know, nurses, medical professionals and doctors who are risking their life. And that is amazing because they are, they are heroes. Uh, but at the same time, we need that same image with meatpacking workers. And personally, I, I don't find it very, um, I, I find it very counterproductive that it seems like there's a lot of blame shifting, shifting and personal responsibility placed on cultures and different um, and maybe lifestyles of these immigrant workers. And that's just bad information that's being put out there um, by various sources. And I think what's more important is to get out the public health aspect, the people who study this and know who can prevent the spread of these diseases. Thank you both so much for sharing all this information with us. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to our guests and to members of our planning committee, Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Paul Gilbert, Mike Honig, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Walkner. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.